Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How we doing, everybody? So good to see all of you. And though I cannot see you, for those of you who are home, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, most of you probably know me, and it is great to see you, or to, to know at least that you're there uh, as we continue the series, Blessed, this morning. Um, the last couple of days have been a little bit of a whirlwind for our family, most of our, all of our elders really, and, and most of our deacons have been aware of this, have been praying for us, and uh, I thought it was probably time just to let the, the rest of our church family know uh, that for many, many years now, my mother uh, has been suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and just this week, uh, we received a call telling us that she's been transitioned into palliative care, which means that hospice uh, has taken over. And uh, the good news about that is that, uh, well, as you can plainly see, that was taken day before yesterday. Um, all the COVID restrictions have now been removed. Um, and so they're allowing the immediate family uh, to go in. That, as you can imagine, has caused uh, much blessing on her part. Bigger smiles, her family's there. Uh, my father is, was, I'm certain, there yesterday. Um, but we got to travel down in a bit of a whirlwind trip uh, and spend some just, just precious, precious moments with her. And so I just want to thank those of you who've been in the know about this for your prayers and for those of you who are part of our larger church family who maybe did not know until now. Uh, I want to thank you as well because I know you pray for your pastor regardless. Now you know a little bit more intelligently uh, how to pray. Uh, we don't know what the outcome of this is going to be in terms of time limit, although we are told uh, they have a few things that they're trying to do. Uh, the big factor in all of this is she has not eaten in a long, long time, uh, which is, as I understand it, a symptom of this disease and its late stages of, of progression. Um, and if they cannot reverse course with that, uh, we're being told that we're looking at a time window of somewhere between two and six weeks. And so just pray for our family. Pray for my father, who's been married to her for 50 years. Um, what a blessing that's been. And, um, and thank you for your prayers. And as I'm sure you can understand, that makes today's message just about as personal as it gets. So I would appreciate your prayers as I try not to channel too much of Joel so that you can hear the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 4, I've twice in my life been to the Grand Canyon. Once when I was a kid, and another time when I was older, my, my oldest son Sam, I think he was about nine, I was out there on a sabbatical trip doing some research and took a few days to play hooky, and he and I drove north from Phoenix to the Grand Canyon, and we saw it, and after all of my years of life on this earth, traveling to five continents, all the beautiful vistas I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them, I will still tell you, from my personal opinion, that's the most gorgeous, breathtaking scene I've ever set eyes on in my life. And if you see that picture and you go, wow, that is beautiful. Yeah, that ain't beautiful. Let me tell you what's beautiful. Standing there, that's beautiful. Because I don't care. We got some amazing photographers in here. You can't capture it, can you? For those of you who've been there, there's just no way to do it. 
Now, here's the thing. That's pretty much the limit of what I've seen. When I go to the Grand Canyon, and it's the limit of what most people see. Most people uh, apparently agree with me because there are about 6.4 million of them, at least pre-COVID, who would visit the Grand Canyon every year, which means 6.4 million people spending hundreds, even thousands of dollars on airline tickets and hotel rooms and national park admission fees to, to go see what really is, I mean, can we just be honest, it's just the biggest pothole in the world, right? That's pretty much what it is. But it's a gorgeous pothole. Like, I wish the potholes in Highway 9 looked like that, don't you? Yeah, it might make it worth the front end alignment. This is gorgeous, so it's confusing to me when I think about this fact. The average visitor to that site, I'm talking Clark W. Griswold in his station wagon with his family, driving from the Chicago suburbs, spending twice as much money as he thought it was going to take to get there, finally gets there. You know how long he stays? On average, 15 minutes. After all that expense and all that time, the average visitor spends 15 minutes looking at that beautiful vista, and then they walk away. But there's another group, they're a very, very small minority, who decide they're not just going to stay longer, they're going to make a true adventure out of this. And if you want to find those people, you want to go to the south rim of the canyon, and you want to find the trailhead for something called Bright Angel Trail on the south rim. And I want you to watch those hikers as they come up. It's the most direct route, supposedly the easiest route, straight down to the Colorado River. But it's also one of the most dangerous, fraught with, with trouble hiking trails that you can find anywhere in North America. So what you got to do is you got to wait until they come back up. I'm not talking about the hikers starting on the trip that are all giddy. I'm talking about the ones coming up that are finishing their trek. They're tired. You don't want to get near them because they stink. They're sweaty. They're bruised in all parts of their body. They've fallen. Some of them they're bruised in the face because they fell and they landed on their face. They've got sprains and some of them are carrying others of them. Some of them even mild breaks, blood, sweat, tears. But you know what else you see when you look at those beaten, bruised, battered, fatigued hikers? You see something you don't see in the faces of the people who just spend 15 minutes at the South Rim. You see smiles. I mean biggins. Big smiles, even on the ones that are injured because that hard path that they have taken has led to exponentially more joy than a jet helicopter tour over the top of that thing, or even worse, just a 15-minute glance from the rim could ever provide. But that joy came at a cost, didn't it? Blood, sweat, and tears. Literally, blood, sweat, and tears. I think about that story when I read these words from Jesus in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I told you last week, if you have a Bible that translates the word blessed, happy, throw it away. Okay? That's no disrespect to Bibles. That's just telling you that ain't the Bible. Right? That's crap. Because it's not happiness that Jesus is talking about here. And, and, and I think the issue is that our, we live in a world that's kind of addicted 
to happiness. In fact, a, a sort of a trite surface level form of happiness. If you want to see it described more comprehensively, I would recommend a book to you written by Neil Postman in the mid-1980s. Pick it up sometime. You get it on Amazon still. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And if you read it some 35 years after it's written, it reads like a prophecy. And it basically tells us that this is our way of coping with pain. We escape. Let's get away. Let's not spend too much time there. And what we grab onto to try to help us to get through it is this trite form of happiness that's admittedly in great supply, but it has a very short shelf life and zero power to heal. And the strongest evidence for how quickly and how vociferously we pursue that happiness can, can be seen in how we, how we approach the subject of sadness and mourning. It's a lot like those six million tourists who spend 15 minutes at the Grand Canyon. They know it's there. They understand the aesthetic value of spending maybe thousands of dollars to get out there to see the thing. They know it's a reality, but let's not invest a lot of time there. Just a brief helicopter tour, maybe. For most, not even that. 10, 15 minutes tops. That'll do. And the hikers who've made that bright angel trail walk and been bruised and broken will tell them, you miss the truest joy when you choose a shortcut like that. And the same is true when it comes to mourning. Because mourning ain't fun, is it? We've been doing some mourning. Our family's been doing some mourning the last couple of, weeks, couple of days, actually, especially. Mourning is not fun. It ain't fun to talk about it. It ain't fun to be around people that are doing it. There's nothing pleasurable about it. And so the temptation then is, let's spend about 15 minutes at the rim, and then let's get out of Dodge, right? A quick flyover. Visit, visit the occasional funeral home, intensive care unit, and then let's get back to something more pleasant. And what Jesus is going to teach us over the next few minutes is when you approach mourning like that, you miss out. You miss out on some of the greatest blessings. And this, this again, this teaching is is encapsulated within the larger teaching of blessing. What does it mean to live blessed? That's my goal for you and for me, is that by the end of this series, we would, if we're still using that hashtag on social media, put different descriptions in front of it than perhaps we do right now. What does it mean to live blessed? And we've already discovered that this blessed life that Jesus is talking about is full of paradox, truth, standing on its head, shouting for our attention as G.K. Chesterton described it for us last week. It's a seeming contradiction. You've got to get very, very close to see it. You have to experience it before it really makes any sense. Well, this is a big one. It might be the biggest paradox in all of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. You'll be blessed if you mourn. So here's the question I want to ask. What are you missing if you don't? What am I missing if I choose to take the easy way out of what my family's going through right now? If you choose to take the easy way out of the things your family may be going through in the future or has gone through in the past. Let me share three things with you. The first is this. The meaning of your mourning matters. In other words, let's get the definitions right here. Let's make sure we understand what he's talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Because when you consider the whole of Scripture on this, the Bible teaches us there's actually two kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and there's ungodly sorrow. Would you like to see some examples of, of ungodly sorrow? Let me give you just a couple of those. Beginning in 2 Samuel 13, we see a man in 
mourning. He is outside his mind with mourning, and his name is Ammon. His friend Jonadab asks him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Ammon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Fighting your gag reflex a little bit? This guy's an emotional wreck. He's in mourning. But this is an ungodly sorrow because it's based in an incestuous lust for his half-sister. You thought you had to tune into soaps to see that kind of stuff. Just read your Bible. That kind of mourning is not... You, the kind of compassion you have on someone with that kind of mourning is not the same as someone with godly sorrow. You get this? You don't respond to this the way Jonadab did. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you feel that way. You know what? Maybe if you pretend you're sick, she'll come in to take care of you and you get the door shut and then you can physically overpower her and take what you want and then you'll be happy. Yeah, wrong. You respond to this kind of mourning with, stop being a pervert. That's how you respond to it. It's not that you don't have compassion, but you recognize ungodly sorrow. No comfort ever came from that kind of sorrow. We see another example of worldly mourning in King Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 4. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. Why? Because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He, he wanted to buy a vineyard. Naboth said, it's not for sale. Not even to the king. And the king has a fit. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Emotionally devastated because he can't have something he wants. That's not mourning. You know what that is? That's outrage. We got enough of that in our world. That's not mourning. That's outrage. And Paul gives us a succinct contrast here between this sinful grief and the grief and the mourning that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right? we, we've already seen that, that worldly grief, right? Well, what does godly grief look like? Let me, let me give you two example, examples of that. Jeremiah 9.1, here's a, a patriot, a man who loves his country, but is speaking truth to his country that is now undergoing judgment with a broken heart. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jesus, by the way, would come along 600 years later and do the same thing. Look at Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. In Luke 7, there's a woman who was a known sinner who comes to Jesus in desperation and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. What does godly and ungodly sorrow look like today? How do we understand the meaning of our mourning and how do we recognize when it doesn't look the way that it should? I'm going to say some things here that are going to make probably several of you really uncomfortable. Keep in mind I love you. You believe I love you? All right. I'm going to mention two names to you. 
that are going to trigger some of you. But you remember how I said this is not an easy path? We ain't taking the easy path this morning. Amen? We're just not going to do it. So let me give you two names well-known to every one of us right now. The first one is a 26-year-old EMT named Brianna Taylor. Back in March, she was there with the man that she was living with, a guy named Kenneth Walker. Louisville Metro Police Department issued what's called a no-knock warrant. They believed that there were some really, really bad guys on the other side of that door. Turns out they weren't any. But as they busted down the door, Kenneth Walker responds with a gunshot. Now, I, I don't know. I'm not in the court. I'm not in the grand jury. I'm not here to retry it in front of all of you. That's the last thing in the world we need to do. All I can tell you is this, as a husband and father, and I know some of you don't, wouldn't agree with your pastor about this, and that's fine. Everybody's got different convictions about a lot of different things, and that includes guns. But I'm going to tell you, as a gun owner, I don't know that, that I would have done anything different than this guy did. Somebody busted down his door. He didn't recognize them. He saw his family threatened. He felt like something was happening to the people that, that, that he loved. He fired. He had a police officer. Police officers responded with 32 rounds of their own, six of which hit Brianna Taylor, and she died. And there have been protests, there's been anger, there's been angst, there's been rationalization, there's been all kinds of things around this. Just earlier this week, two of the three officers that was discovered would not be indicted. And so the response has been twofold to this. You know it, right? One is protests in the city of Louisville and other cities around the country, most of which are completely legitimate because you'd understand if you've got a daughter anywhere near this age, the pain of someone who's lost someone like this, the pain of the African-American community. Now, some of that protest has turned violent. Two officers of the law who were not there, who are in no way responsible for what happened in that woman's apartment, have already been shot. There's been violence. There's the threat of continued violence. I saw a U-Haul, news footage of a U-Haul door go up, people taking baseball bats out of it. And I thought to myself, I don't think you need a baseball bat to protest. Folks, there's only one way really to describe that. It is wicked and godless, and there is no place for a follower of Jesus who is living under his lordship, who believes that those in authority over us should be respected. We should not be within a thousand miles of participating in that or excusing it. But on the other side of this, there's a majority culture that shrugs its shoulders and says, well, the court's spoken. From a legal standpoint, there's really nothing that can be done. Trust the system. She should, and even some more, like, well, she should have been more careful kind of people she was hanging out with. You know what's happening in the middle of all this? There's an African-American community in this country, a number of whom are sitting in close proximity to some of y'all right now, watching you. They're your next-door neighbors. I've talked to them. They don't know that they can talk to some of us because of some of that language and you know what they're doing they're mourning they are grieving some of them are afraid and so the question here is not who's right and who's wrong in this moment the question is are we going to mourn with our brothers and sisters are we going to be the church of the living god or are we going to pontificate like fools on facebook what are we going to do are we mourning with them now, if you're not uncomfortable enough, let me mention another name. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died September 18th. 
complications from a battle with cancer, many years. Almost immediately, the left in this country went absolutely insane, throwing a temper tantrum because her replacement will not be an ideological match. That's someone responding to a woman's death with culture warring. And that too is completely unacceptable among the people of God. But if you think that the left are the only people acting like idiots in the middle of this, you have missed some of the most classless behavior on the right of conservatives all but dancing on the grave of an 87-year-old woman. And you know what's happening in the middle of this? There's a Jewish community in D.C. who's grieving the loss of a mother and a grandmother. They're grieving. You know where she went to synagogue, by the way? Otis Israel our partners in the fight against opioid addiction. My good friend, Aaron Alexander, one of the co-senior rabbis, the other one, Lauren Holtzblatt. Lauren preached Justice Ginsburg funeral two days ago. Believe what you want to believe. I, there, you didn't, if you think I'm trying to forward some kind of political agenda here, you weren't listening a couple of weeks ago. You can have strong opinions, brothers and sisters, but what I'm asking you is in a moment like this, will we choose to mourn with, as it turns out, people we know, people sitting right next to us, people who are members of faith communities in very nearby cities who have fought with us to try to battle a force that has killed many of our own people. Are we going to refuse to mourn at this moment? The meaning of your mourning matters. Outrage, pontification, polarization, culture warring, none of that ever brought anybody any comfort. None of it is ever going to bring any comfort. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. And brothers and sisters, I think the reality of what we're having to sit in right now under the sovereignty of a holy God in a year like 2020 should scare us to death when we think of the corollary to that statement. There will be no comfort until my people learn to mourn. The meaning of your mourning matters. It matters. Godly sorrow. The mourning that Jesus speaks about here, that's what it looks like. It's an overwhelming sense of the brokenness of the world, the sin that caused that brokenness, and this might be the hardest part, the amount of that sin in my own life that is complicit in all of that. So two questions. What do you weep over? What do you not weep over? The meaning of your mourning matters. Secondly, the result of your mourning matters. Godly mourning, it has one final destination. You know what it is? Repentance repentance. Look at James chapter 4. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, keep in mind when you read passages like this, mourning is not the destination. Mourning is the journey. It's the only road that gets you where Jesus wants you to get. But it's not the destination. So Jesus, Jesus is not saying, blessed are the grim. Blessed are the people who look like they always sucked on a lemon. 
Blessed are the people who never smile. Blessed are the people who are always the Debbie Downer in every group of people. Okay? I, we, listen, we, we mourned what was going on with mom, and then we went to breakfast this, the next day, and my brother and I were laughing so hard we were crying for a different reason. This isn't all about doom and gloom. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon said some preachers he had known appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some preachers like that because he once said that in a diary entry, sounding surprised, I went to church today and I'm not depressed. But mourning is a one-way road to a destination God wants us to reach. Mourning should lead to repentance, not outrage, not happiness. Repentance. Laughter. Now, laughter's a good thing. You all know me. I love to laugh. If you think I'm out of line with some of my humor, I apologize. Just be thankful that I am married to Amy. Otherwise, you would not believe what that woman edits. That's all I'm saying. I love to laugh. And, and laughing's essential, isn't it? it? It's just part of the world needs it. Solomon reminds us that it's like good medicine. But that doesn't mean that just like good medicine, you can't overdose on it. You can have too much of it. And in a world that despises sorrow to the extent that we go keystone cops crazy trying to avoid it, we miss the blessing that Jesus is talking about here because, because we want to escape pain. And that, by the way, is especially true when it comes to our own sins. I've been a pastor long enough to know we in the church have perfected the art of hiding the worst parts of ourselves from everybody else. We know how to run from God calling out our sin. We know how to run from each other. We've even perfected the systems in the church. We use trite phrases like, well, why don't you show them some grace? Or, well, they're just really hurting right now. Or, you hurt their feelings because you confronted them with that. Well, we're trying to actually help them get to a healthy place spiritually. You know, maybe if you wouldn't triangulate yourself, but help us get to that other person. The object here is redemption. But if it gets too pressurized, what happens? If it becomes too obvious, well, we'll just go to another church. You know what you miss on that? Listen to these words from Paul David Tripp. We cannot grieve what we do not see. We cannot confess what we have not grieved. And we cannot turn from what we haven't confessed. There are some things, and according to Jesus, it is some of the most blessed things. You can't see unless you're looking through tears. The meaning of your mourning matters. The result of your mourning matters. Now, here's the good news. The God you mourn to matters. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know what he's saying there? The God you came here to worship today has broad shoulders. That's what he's saying. It's interesting to see that word comfort in other places in Scripture. In Acts chapter 15, you see that word, and it's translated encouraged. It's brothers in a church giving hope during a really trying time, and it's the verbal form of the Greek word paraclete, to encourage, to comfort. Would you like to know who else is called the paraclete in Scripture? It's the Holy Spirit. Yep. The Holy Spirit is the one Jesus promised his disciples would bring 
comfort. He says the following in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Sometimes this verse has been interpreted as a, a future promise, right? You mourn now. Comfort comes later, like when we get to heaven. We don't have all the comfort. Well, that's true in a sense. There won't be any mourning in heaven. We're actually going to talk about that in a, in a subsequent series coming right after the first of the year. We've got to be careful not to misinterpret this as purely future tense here, though the Holy Spirit lives in me now. So the comfort Jesus speaks of here is immediate when we weep over our sin, over the brokenness of the world. You know, it, it's, I, I used to say, yeah, just turn, turn the media off. It's like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not the right advice. Maybe the issue is just how you respond to what you see. Brokenness over the world, brokenness over the truth. That And this is going to be hard for some of you. There is never coming a day this side of the return of Jesus where we're going to be able to fix everything. Ever. Okay? It's not coming. That means we will always, until we get to heaven, be in close proximity to sorrow. Jesus says in this one verse, so succinctly, bring all of that to me and you don't have to wait. I'm right there through the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in you if you are a follower of Jesus. God has broad shoulders. And that, that actually reveals another very profound truth. I've actually heard even some, some well-meaning but some misguided preachers say to people in, in various stages of grief, you need to be strong. You ever heard that advice? You need to be strong. Well, listen, even on my best day, between me and God, I'm the fragile one. We, we, we forget about that, don't we? I'm the fragile one. That fragility is just, it, it's just exponentially more sensitive when I'm going through times of sorrow, which is why maybe Jesus says you are blessed in that moment because that's the moment when you have the greatest propensity to run to me because you got nowhere else to run. you got no other shoulders to cry on. It's just me, and you will find out I can handle your lament. I can handle this for you. But the corollary, when we don't mourn that sorrow, it's going to come out in other ways. I think that's what we're seeing in our world right now. It's going to come out, everything we've seen in the past few months, the unredemptive ways that grief presents, anger, blame shifting, being argumentative with everybody, polarization, confirmation bias, the need to be right every single time. What comfort has come from that? What comfort has come from that? It, all it does is just make you more anxious, doesn't it? Because you won the argument, but the relationship's now been destroyed. And over what exactly? The hardest thing to do in moments like this is the thing that Jesus declares in this verse. And for us, if I could just sort of succinctly sum this up, it means we recognize that in the last several months, people have become unemployed. 
They've lost the ability to pay their bills. They've lost their businesses. They've gotten sick. Some of them have died. They've suffered from increased anxiety and mental health and depression based upon the complications that came from mitigation measures. They, they're suffering now from drug overdoses and abuse. All of this started with an inanimate object. I mean, I, wouldn't it... I, I, Maybe you don't agree. It's fine if you don't agree. I think it would be easier if there were some sort of personified enemy. Because at least then we can mobilize. This thing's a virus. It doesn't care. Okay? I know some of you think it cares who you're voting for in six weeks. It don't. Okay? It's a virus. It is, it's animate, but, but it doesn't have emotions. It doesn't have agendas. It just does what it does. And it represents what Christian thinkers for centuries have called natural evil. And natural evil, you know what it'll do better than anything else? It'll reveal the brokenness of our systems. I was talking with David Didden, former chief medical officer for this county, early on in this whole pandemic thing. Uh, and I sat down with him. He's a local physician here in town, good, become a good friend of mine. And, and I'm just trying to get my arms wrapped around this by talking to as many medical professionals as I can. And he laughed at me and he said, Pastor, here's the thing. If the cure to everything wrong with us right now medically was a hip replacement, we would have solved this problem in 2019. Because when it comes to hip replacements and knee replacements, and he, he, he rattled off a few other things, he said in, in the medical field, nobody tops the United States of America. When it comes to epidemiology, we're near the bottom of the list. And that's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing right now. You're like, well, wait a minute. We're the richest? Don't matter. We're sinful. Sin infiltrates us. It infiltrates systems, even if we don't mean it to, and our systems are broken. They will never on this side of eternity be whole. We need to and we must do what we can to improve them. But from time to time, God sends things to us to remind us that there will never be a utopia until Jesus comes back. And when we don't respond to natural evil in the right way, you know what comes out of it? Moral evil. People turn against each other. And in the middle of all of that nonsense, we have not and we will not, no matter what we do, be able to stop some people from dying. A year from now, there may be people in front of me that won't be in front of me right now. That grieves this pastor's heart. That is highly possible with this thing. There is no way, no matter what we do, that we can stop some people from going broke. And it is when God sees us backed into that particular corner, it's at that moment more than ever, you and I need to embrace the truth that this world is not our home anyway. If you want comfort in that truth, though, you have to mourn. You can't spend 15 minutes at the South Rim. you got to go down. You got to go deep. You got to risk near certain injury to yourself. But you will find in that moment, just like I have the last couple of days, God's shoulders are the only ones broad enough to bring us comfort in times like these. If we are willing to cry on those shoulders, some things, the most blessed things, can only be seen through tears. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lord Jesus, how profound 
are words that men like me have read hundreds of times. And Lord, the power was something that I discovered, not something I created, something that I and so many others ignore when things are going well. And so, Father, in a, in a time like this, in a culture like this, with all the fear and all the angst and all the anger, all the outrage, and in the middle of all this, various groups of people, all of whom are a part of this church, whose very lives may even be at risk because of some of this, and we can't fix it. Lord, remind us of this truth. The greatest comfort comes with that realization. When we admit to our own fragility and helplessness and weakness, and we come to you, and we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Lord, I pray for a comfort like has never been felt before to the men and women in front of me, to those who are watching online right now. And Father, that you would show yourself mighty, that you would demonstrate your shoulders broad, and that your people would be used, that we would find that comfort. That comfort would produce a joy, and that joy would motivate us to live out the rest of this blessed life that we are privileged to be able to discover over the next few weeks. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.